Bonjour, ni hao. Como estas? This is John James and welcome to Champagne Strategy. This is a red pill business podcast which deconstructs world-class strategy focusing on growth, marketing and sales with just a sprinkling of tech and champagne. Listen to this episode if you dare, but you've been warned, there's no going back. So just before we get into today's episode, I just want to give a shout out to some of my friends, Yaniv and Chris, who also have another podcast called The Startup Podcast. What I really enjoyed about it is they've been there, done that. And they've worked for Google, small startups, billion dollar unicorns. So if you're in the startup game, scale up game or the tech industry and you want to cut through all the folly that everyone talks about, I highly recommend you give a listen to one of the episodes. So if you have a chance, just Google and search for Chris and Yaniv, Y-A-N-I-V and their podcast, The Startup Podcast. Innovation, it's one of the top things businesses rate as their main focus, but more often than not, they're terrible at it. So it remains an elusive buzzword at best, something that everyone talks about and wants to attach themselves to, but doesn't really know how to do. So today we're talking to an innovation expert, specifically innovation and new product development. But the skills you'll learn in innovation can be applied to any entrepreneurial activity and they're applicable to so many different roles. So maybe you're thinking of starting a business or a startup, Maybe you work in product or growth. Maybe you're launching a new campaign or go-to-market strategy, or you're developing a new operational system. Innovation at its core, when done well, is all about creating product problem fit, and at a larger sense, product market fit. And this is really, really hard. As you'll soon find out, learning this skill set is very multidisciplinary, but quite essential if you really want to understand how business works at a first principle level. Underneath, most companies will admit their innovation isn't working very well and there's a couple of main reasons for that so if you want to learn how to avoid innovation mistakes and learn how to do it properly you need to listen to this episode and i think no matter what sort of skill level you're in whether you want to start a business or whether you just want to do better work within your own department if you have any sort of exposure with the market and want to learn how to actually earn revenue this is the episode for you without further ado ladies and gentlemen adam hamilton welcome to the show what are we drinking we are drinking some Casamigos tequila. So nice. that is Clooney's, Cheers. Clooney's brand that he founded, that he sold to Diageo. I don't know for how much, do you? I heard he was very wealthy off it. So this is the one here. Casamigos, 100% agave. All the best ones have proper blue agave. I, I think the cheap ones, they sort of cut with this other silver agave or something. Ah. And that's how they sort of cut the quality. I ah, still right. call it tequila, but it's not. Oh, we're drinking the good one. We're drinking we? 100% yeah, the good okay. stuff, yeah. yeah. I mean, Yalisco in Mexico, which is where it has to be from to be called tequila. I mean, it has to be made with 100% agave right. uh, from that area to be called tequila. But then you've got mezcal and everything else, which is different process. That bit of that whole... Um, mm sparkling white champagne yeah. kind of thing. I think the blue agave is a bit more expensive, slower growing, but uh, more uh, a better quality juice. It's a bit more rounded and like luscious, which is why, you know, people have it. But um, I, I'm not a tequila expert, but we did do a tequila tasting night. So. Yeah, right. Yeah, but it can only be called tequila if... If it's made from 100% agave in from that Yellowsco, region. yeah. Right, it's right, a, right. It's like champagne. Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah, it has to be yeah. of that region. And they sort of protect that. Everything else is just called best cup famous. But um, I think he did, you know, 
very well out of those hundreds of millions of dollars or something. So well, he definitely needs the money. So <laughs> good on him. And we got number two two zero four zero match. So you know. Anyway, uh, thanks for coming on the show, Adam. Just really quickly, one or two minutes about your career and sort of what you're doing now. Uh, yeah. So Adam Hamilton. I'm a marketing and innovation consultant. I work with companies to help them find growth through brand building and, of course, innovation. Most of my clients, apart from B two C, business to consumer. Mostly product businesses, but not exclusively. So a lot of work, as you'd imagine, me having a background in FMCG with that comes to the clients in that space, but not exclusively. A little bit of government work, a little bit of services work, a bit of B2B services work. About 15 years on the corporate side, working in brand management, marketing, innovation for large multinationals like Mars and Lion, Kraft Heinz. So I wound up in... 2019 in the corporate careers, then I decided I would venture into the world of independent consulting. For about three to four years, I've been doing that now. So uh, mostly in the product area and a bit of a tilt towards innovation or new product development. Largely that. There, there is some strategic marketing work that I do that is around brand building. That's not necessarily product or innovation based, but there's a lot of overlap, as you'd imagine. Yeah, it's funny because um, when we talk about you know the brand versus the product, I've done an episode on product strategy, which was from a person who is consulting in SaaS, uh, Rich Marinov, and it was really interesting from you know software, but very exclusively software. But I talked to him about like what are the more what are the more first principles, no matter what you're selling, that mm-hmm. is true. And I think you know when I talk about products, sometimes we can get fascinated on just like the tangible product instead of. The broader offering, yes. uh, which you know includes brand and product elements. So, Absolutely. Uh, is that why you sort of have to marry both together and then add on to pricing and other sort of strategy areas? It comes down to definitions and things, right? Mm. But let's have a look at innovation as uh, as value creation, right? Mm. Um, like and that. commercial creativity. In order to go from identifying an opportunity and insight, a problem, and under satisfied need build a solution and validate that and make sure it's desirable, feasible, viable, adaptable, take it to market ultimately, you think you you touch basically every part of the business. It's certainly every part of the marketing mix. Positioning and brand, you've got product obviously overtly, you've got distribution and accessibility, you've got communication, you've got pricing, you've got profit and loss and commercial dimensions to it as well. Customer service, delivery. Um, everything, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I see that as an overlap. And what I've been really interested in lately is I'm, I'm rereading the uh, How Brands Grow, which, you know, have been absolutely influential on me as a, as a marketer. And you told me you were one of the first people to get onto this. And what was this, like 13 years ago? Was first release I don't know if I was one of the first people okay, okay. to get very on. early. I, I think Byron and, and Andrew Ehrenberg and stuff have been working on it for like decades and decades, yes. I think fifty years worth of work or something. But what I what I did say is I was um, I felt very fortunate for I think it was maybe a year into my career, two thousand and six or so, we had Byron come out and blow people's minds <laughs> in in the marketing department at Mars, and we had our agency partners as well. And as you can imagine, it's a bit of friction. Yeah, you start sharing these laws and this evidence for things that might be counter to what they've spruced for for a long time. And yeah, it was great. But yeah, it was very influential on me as a marketer. And now I'm reading it with a different, not a different lens, but a slightly different angle in terms of thinking: How can we use innovation to help brands grow? 
because the innovation is a great conduit to driving mental and physical availability where your current brand and portfolio positioning and, and competitive get up is, is can be quite limited and you can reach yeah. a diminishing return. So if you try and make your brand easier to think of and make sure it's distinctive and cuts through, serves people in more ways, more use cases and occasions and whatnot, sometimes you have to innovate your way forward with tangible things. You can't just communicate your way there. The other added benefit as well is when you do great innovation, I'm sure you can sell it yourself on your on, on your own sort of website, direct to consumer and stuff, but retailers, they, they want your things. So it's a way of driving physical availability, transactional availability too. Yeah, it's funny. I was talking earlier about having this discussion with clients and a lot of them seem to be very set in their ways with like the products that they currently have because they've always sold it. And there's low risk with you know, stuffing with that, I should say. You know, when you put on this lens of like light, buy a heavy buyer mark and you start emerging some of these uh, principles or, you know, laws together, mm. you start thinking a bit more tangentially around, well, maybe we could have a small sample product and then upsell them to something that's our cash cow and then you have this kind of portfolio or product architecture that you're mm. managing instead of just these sort of silos of where you think are stuck to the categories you know which excludes potential sales and like you said potential mental quality all that kind of thing so yeah you know that's got me thinking about that but have you seen that in, in your work with extending the products out or definitely i think there's a there's probably a school that exists <laughs> that thinks the main weapon you have is communications and advertising. And if only they knew how good our thing was, they would buy it. You know, if we're not growing, it must be something we're not doing with communications. But there are some very rational reasons, uh, very practical barriers for people not buying your thing. It might not be relevant for where they are at a certain point in time. It might not um, be solving the problems that they have. It might not be a great fit for their life, their world, their use cases and occasions. So it doesn't matter how much you hit them over their head, reach, frequency, pointed messaging, whatever. Mm. They're not perceptual problems. They're, they're, they're rational barriers. And there's sometimes the only way you can overcome that is through changing things that aren't just about communications, but it's the rest of the marketing mix. What's a good innovation is just really sensible. It's too expensive. It's too complicated. I can't access it. And you can solve those things with some very sensible innovation. They don't need to be incredibly transformative from that perspective. But, I mean, there's plenty of great case studies of brands stretching into, uh, you know, adjacencies in different segments to participate in more occasions with more segments. Yeah, I love that sort of CEP side of things or jobs to be done. Before we get into that, though, a simple question, I'll answer. What is innovation? Well, I, I guess, like I said before, I think of innovation as being maybe in the verb sense of the word i think of it being as commercial creativity very deliberately those two words because like we think about commercial creativity in the the outcome you're trying to create value for various stakeholders people in the outside world your customers your users your consumers your members hopefully do the right thing by animals and the planet and stuff as well at the same time. But really, like, who are you serving? Give them some value and they're outside the building. And we need to create value for ourselves inside the building as well. So for people out there, it's benefits. It's their, their, their functional benefits. They're useful. They, they improve the way that we feel. They might be better for, from a social benefit point of view, how we connect with other people, how we see ourselves, how other people see us. So that's just sort of simple jobs theory and the benefit-based marketing. Yep. 
And then inside the building, it's not enough just to create value completely selflessly. Maybe maybe some come, not-for-profits and some very purpose-driven companies, but let's just say we're talking for-profit companies that yes. want to grow. You've got to provide value in the term in terms of growth and revenue, but also retain some value in the form of profit for it mm-hmm. to be sustainable. So you need to unite those things. Yeah. Creativity by itself could just be ideas or inventions. A lot of ideas and inventions don't add any value, right? And commerciality by itself, well, you'll get to a point of diminishing returns. You start focusing on the near-term efficiency, productivity, all the things that constrain and keep you where you are. Yes. So it's the real convergence of those two things that lead to value creation. Very different uh, mental models and exposure. Like I find, um, again, I was interviewing someone else the other day and it's like there's the creative types and the commercial types. It's like mm-hmm. if I have to split them, it's like the creative types just want to create and, you know, everything's like, right, and then the commercial people just want to sell and they forget, uh-huh. you know, sometimes the purpose behind what's being sold here and, and why people like it. You need both, I think, is the point. You need both, yeah. And some, like, there's that commercial element which is, still demand-centric, like to your point, the sales, but there's also some a lot of forces inside the business that are more supply-centric and they are incentivized to not deviate much. Deviation is inefficiency. Mm. Um, when we go beyond our core capabilities and core competencies, we're not as good at it and, and it costs us more and therefore it's less profitable. Mm. So there are forces, there's a gravitational force that tries to keep things as it is. And we absolutely need those people. That's the beating heart of the company. That's That, that makes everything strong for a foundation to innovate from. Mm. But if that's all we have, that's when we become ripe for disruption because we, we don't read the play, we don't skate ahead of the park, and we aren't on the front foot. Mm. We get disrupted. Someone goes, oh, my God, how did that happen? Why didn't we see it coming? And we didn't have enough runway for the creative types, the explorers, to go and build the future. And what sort of mental models do you use here? This, you mentioned jobs to be done, Oxlade and Christensen, it's pretty famous for this. Uh, we yeah. mentioned Byron Sharps. CEPs, I think for me, are a really interesting way of, again, looking at the buying context, the product in context, in usage, yeah. and then creating things around that. Is that sort of two main things you look at? Or um, <clears throat> I, I really like, so by CEPs, you're talking about category entry mm-hmm. points, mm-hmm. yeah. So I really, I, I love that approach from a, from a brand stretch and a disruptive entry um, point of view because if you're late to the party, um, sometimes you can win just off the sheer power of your brand and yep. distribution, but the odds are really against you because you're late to the party. If you bring a crappy gift or the same gift as everybody else, what's the incentive for somebody to switch? If the current things are doing a pretty good job, why should they Pick yeah. your brand. And and marketing and availability can be a great advantage. But I think for me, what I've been measuring and what I've been studying is about two-thirds of the reasons why innovation succeeds or fails are actually way upstream. They're pre-revenue. They're things you need to sort out before you go to the market. Yeah. So to go back to your point around category entry points, what I really like is identifying those white spaces to capitalise upon okay. and not just in a romantic ideology, theoretical, you know, fancy positioning statement that someone's dreamt up at their desk or in a, in a meeting room at work. In a brand deck. Um, and Brandon, it's just like let's go and let's go and measure what benefits do they yield from this category? What are they associating it with? Who's owning what? Yeah. Where might there be a way to do something better mm-hmm. and stand and own for that? Be distinctively associated with that. Mm. When people think of that um, that that category in that occasion and that need, 
how do we get in the mindset as well? And that's what I like about brain stretch and category entry points. Um, but yeah, back, back to your point, I would say I do like that kind of stuff, uh, jobs to be done. And I think two really good frameworks that um, I'm seeing more and more people use, not just pure innovators, but across the board, are just the Lean Canvas and Business Model Canvas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's a great way to organize and structure um, some thoughts and simplify it. Uh, I I like the Lean Canvas a lot. I sort of like the Business Model Canvas, so I steal a bit from both. Yeah, I just turn it into a hybrid. So what is an innovation? Like, what does it get confused with, do you think, the most? It gets confused with, like I was saying before, uh, ideas and invention. You have to create value and it must be something you can operationalize. Okay. What, what is an innovation? I guess a lot of people will jump to whatever's easiest to grasp. So if I work in FMCG and my brain operates in this category, I can get myopic in thinking that innovation means improvements to products and product extensions within those constraints. That can be very limiting. After a while, you hit a point of diminishing returns. It can be cannibalistic, so it's not really offering incrementality. So I think that people need to broaden their horizon and zoom out a little bit and not say, well, I'm in a product-based category, therefore my innovation is product-driven. And maybe think a little bit more like the Doblin model and the 10 types of innovation and think to yourself, there's product services, business model, experiences, process. You know, there's so many, so many different ways we can bring value to life in my current role might not be given the runway to play in all of those spaces. But at an organizational level, thinking about business model innovation can be some of the biggest wins you, you will ever get monetizing and finding new revenue streams by exploiting and leveraging your strengths and your capabilities, I think is something that should be really put into the context of what people think about when they think about innovation. I'm going to have to read Doblin. Um, one thing I just thought of is like mimicking. You, you see this happen a lot with Burger King's Hungry Jack's brand in Australia. And they just, all they do is wait for McDonald's to launch something and they basically just tweak it a bit, almost copy it and mimic it. And that's yeah. their strategy and has been for ages. I wouldn't really call it innovation, but maybe it is. What, what's your thoughts? I think fast following is a, a common strategy and I think it can be very successful. Like it's obviously being an innovation person, I don't like it. <laughs> um, but I can think of some examples in, in businesses where I've worked and, you know, there's this competitor that just waits for us to do something and copies it. I guess it just depends on where you draw the line of your definition of innovation. So value creation full stop yeah. or value creation for your like for your companies and is it new to us or new to the world sure. i think there's a there's a role for both because as a company you need to be uh, defending and strengthening your positions of your brands and your current competitive set and if that means playing a little bit of catch up and not drifting behind to become mm-hmm. irrelevant over time yeah. That probably needs to be done and the brand team and the marketing team you know at least in the way fmcg is structured it's part of their remit. Annual brand planning cycles, yep. um, you know, how, how can we grow share within current uh, landscape? Uh, but I, but I, go, I always go back to the, the bigger, more sustainable growth opportunities for innovation is when you're stretching into new space because it's not cannibalistic. You're driving new associations. And, and I think, you know, going back to the Ehrenberg Bass one of, one of the principles, you know, the whole distinctiveness versus differentiation. <laughs> Innovation a great way 
to, to, to drive mental availability and physical availability and be distinctive, mm. but really good innovations start off as quite differentiated as well. But over time, they get those fast followers and yes. those copies and they become less differentiated. Hence why yeah. um, things like distinctiveness and first to scale advantage are really, really important. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I thought about that way. Um, so we kind of talked about the different types of innovation here. You kind of went through the different areas. Of, is that how you categorize innovation? Like there's product, there's process, there's... How do I categorize? So I think there's different formats. Okay. So yeah, products, services, business models, experiences, process, SaaS. You know, some people will put channel and brand and that kind of stuff. For me, that starts to overlap with marketing, but who, who cares, right? Like you're really thinking about where are the opportunities for value creation and how do we use the marketing mix and the operational commercial side of the business to bring them to fruition and make them happen. So from a format point of view, yeah, I, I look at it that way. Okay. And from a categorization perspective, I, I typically put them into three different buckets and, and lots of businesses have a version of this. It might be core, adjacent, transformative. GE had a model which was now, next and new. And some have things like renovation, stretch and breakthrough or step change, whatever it is. The concept is the same, right? The, the closer you play to your core business, the fewer uncertainties and, lower risk. and, and yeah. perceivably lower lower risk yeah. because you know more about your market, you know, the technical side of things, you know how you're going to make it, you know how you're going to get it there. And It's a sure bet. You can, a bit, yeah. yeah, like it's, it's, it's a sure bet in terms of there's less unknowns. But but in terms of the sure bet around the financial, like the uh, succeeding money, like the the near end stuff fails at a pretty similar rate to the to the. <laughs> oh further. really? Yeah, yeah. Like um, it has a much lower chance a lot of the time of returning the cost of capital mm-hmm. because a lot of these near end things are done through the lens of a business's mindset. What can we make? What can we do quickly? What can we do cheaply? So therefore, the actual thing you put out in the market. Is hardly novel. It's pretty predictable. It's more inside out rather than outside. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like asset bias, sort of supply push kind of stuff. Yes. So it typically it'll hit about fifty percent of its forecast, and it will not survive more than two to three years in the market. And that's not long enough with small size of prize to recoup the cost of human capital, any sort of formulation, development, and testing, packaging materials, inventory, selling costs creative research media all those sunk costs they take a while to break even on those so they always they seem safe but some of the some of the near some of the safest stuff can be the riskiest stuff mm-hmm. because you know what else they do they come at an opportunity cost what could you have been working on that's exactly right if you didn't spend 14 months and nine divisions working on that so you have your core which is less uncertain but potentially less incremental value then you have your stretcher adjacencies which is a mixture of uncertainties that might use some of your capital equipment, but you're pushing into category X. Okay. Or it could be something completely novel for an existing space. Or, or extending to a new market, because I'm thinking Ansoft metrics here. Like Ansoft, the same yeah, I mean, if that was exactly the same product just pushed into a different market, I would say it's probably a little bit more business development okay. and then sort of like selling and channel uh, geographical market-based strategy. Sure. But if you build something and fine-tuned it specifically for the needs of the sensitivities in that market, then like, that would be innovation. Like Yellowtail, because they change the taste of their wine for each local market. Yes. Same to the label almost. Yeah. But yeah, very much yeah. mass customers. It's very pinpointed value creation. Mm-hmm. It's, like, it's not like, just take it. 
Yeah. You can just put some ads and billboards and it'll work. It's like, no, no, let's find out what they, what they want, what they prefer, what they desire and see sure. if we can give it to them. Um, so yeah, you have that. And then the final one is this breakthrough step change, transformative stuff. And the moon, the moonshot sort of, you know, moon yeah, shot, like what kind of innovation can change the game that we're in? What can help us manifest our purpose in a completely new way? What can stop us from being the disrupted by getting ahead of that, potentially making ourselves obsolete? And that stuff gets really hero a lot. Yeah. Everyone sort of like focuses on that. They're always in the presentation decks. And inside the building, 80%, 90% of your pipeline is core. Yeah. And that middle sort of often gets forgotten, but that's oh. sort of the area where I, I really like. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of value to be made there. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I like it. So it reminds me of a question I had with uh, Robert Daniels, uh, ex-WeWork CMO, uh, where he was talking more specifically about the marketing budget. He put, you know, that, 10% or 20% of the moonshots, mm. we call them. And then, you know, the, the, the things that he knew would create demand, you know, and were reliable, you know, that's a big chunk. And then there's a 30% of in between. So similar kind of thinking. And there, there are rules of thumb. Uh, I can't remember. It might be McKinsey who have a 70, 20, 10 kind of split, yeah. you know, 70 core, 20 adjacency and, and 10% yeah. moonshot breakthrough transformative, whatever you want to call it. I obviously buy into the the premise behind it, which is relative distribution of funds and resources and effort. Um, I really see it happen in, in real life. CB Insights did some measurement around, you know, basically eight in 10 products in pipelines, just continuous improvements and changes to existing products and really minor, you know, let's do this flavor yogurt this, you know, this year kind of thing. So yeah, it's, it has to be calibrated to the life stage, the size, maturity of a company, the culture, like the leadership commitment to innovation, the legitimacy of innovation, where they're at, and, and also their strategy and their structure. Because it doesn't matter if you quota these things and say 10% or whatever moonshots, and you're so focused on this fiscal year's number, you've got all your troops just delivering the now and just being project managers and troops mm -hmm. for delivering things that have been mandated or requested. You just get in that cycle, that annual cycle. Yeah, business as usual. Kind of business thing. as yeah. usual. Yeah. And unless you have a structure and a strategy and the culture that yeah. allows people to go, I'm, I'm actually not part of the operational day-to-day, -day, this quarter, this year delivery. I'm trying to help you build your future. Yeah. Unless you have that in place, it's very low likelihood that you're ever going to get off those things and that's why m a is used a lot yeah because it's easy just to buy that innovation to, and this is funny it's something i want to talk to you about is like um sometimes the big organization gets the more risk averse they become and the things that make them a good big company are the things that pretty much go against all new innovation uh, and the culture changes so much and like they just can't innovate so then like a big bank then they just end up buying a new like well, tech digital bank or whatever yeah um yeah. what are your thoughts on sort of that like sourcing innovation like innovation hub within a big company or sort of externally should we buy it it's a big question because it can work in some context for some companies you know like a skunk works over here and an incubator might work and over there it's an absolute disaster people are like what, what's going on over there shut that down it's costing us money yeah and and sometimes we demand that the same people that are wearing the marketing brand management hat who are also partnering sales to go into a range review and selling new products we're also working with our creative partners and agencies and then forecasting and doing this and doing that. Or can you just innovate on top of what you're doing? Can you just build a three-year valid 
winning pipeline. And you're competing against insurgents and disruptive startups and other businesses who are just solely focused on that. Mm. And you think you're going to do it in your part in, in your spare time. time and it just doesn't happen. So the, I don't think the, the only thing I'm very confident in, and that's because it's in a lot of the data and it takes out the noise, the anomaly and the, uh, the exception is that if you're serious about innovation from a structural and a resourcing point of view, you need to commit resources to the future. So it can't be just like, a, oh, let's do innovation because it's a buzzword. You actually have to be serious. About yeah, you have, you have to be serious about it. It's, it's time, it's money, it's people, and it's patience. You're not going to get the reward. You're not going to get the return in the kind of time frame you will from a digital ad placement, bit of performance marketing, a little uh, core product extension that you quickly rush to the shelf or a limited edition that you do in six months. Like, I'm not trying to hang on them. They're all really important. But what I'm saying is they're really important, so they should be done. Therefore, your surplus bandwidth, it's not there to do the biggest stuff. Mm. That stuff is incredibly hard. It has a 15% success rate. You can't do it as an afterthought. It needs to be very rigorously thought through, explored, validated, tested, iterated, yeah. you know, before it gets scaled. Yeah. So yeah, that that's the thing that I'm really confident in is is having a clear commitment okay. and, and and leadership, particularly CEO, so important. So it can't be tokenistic. It can't be just a line on the you know let's update our values on the wall and scribble out one and then put innovation. Let's add innovation. Let's yeah. add diversity. Let's add sustainability. Tick, tick, tick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Say all the right things and then whip people for trying anything outside of the box. That's yeah. that's never going to work. Okay, so um, you kind of mentioned a further point there, which is like um, maybe tokenistic middle to, to innovation. Why are there any sort of other major failure points that you see time, time again, or, or circumstances that always kill innovation? Could probably at, probably at two levels, right? There's like the there's the macro level, and that's like the organisational level. That could be a number of things, from like I mentioned before, culture and leadership, absence of commitment. It, it might be a, a short-sighted strategy or an absence of strategy <laughs> or a strategy where corporate strategy and innovation strategy do not connect. They're not integrated. They're not, they're not um, in alignment. It's not clear how innovation is helping the business achieve its vision, purpose, and mission. So innovation is sort of this side thing <laughs> and it doesn't have the support. It has a lot of barriers and opposition inside the company. Um, insufficient resources, yeah. not enough time, not enough money, not enough people, not enough patience, but 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 also uh, quality of uh, quality of people as well. In my career, I've seen many times where, well, how can I say it nicely? Maybe not the sharpest people were gone to lead innovation projects, and and it was very much treated as a execution deployment kind of role. Got like we we've already scoped it. We have a finite start and end and go and project manage this in a very linear fashion, and then we fail at scale. Um, <laughs> fail so, at scale. Yeah, okay. which isn't the ideal time to fail. Right? No. Ideally, you'll do that well upstream pre-revenue yep. in some of your testing and your experiments. So there's that. There's definitely the resourcing side of things. Uh, leading into what I was saying before about lin- linearity of project management, really poor processes or an absence of process is about... Just over half of companies don't use any formal process to innovate with. And most of those that do will use something like Stagegate or Waterfall, which 
has the capability to be great, but the way that it's used is it doesn't really reward uncertainty and it doesn't empower iteration, changing your mind. Stagegate and Waterfall were born out of uh, construction, manufacturing. And so it's like manage on time, in full, within scope, no variation. You know, it's it's it's, it's a it's a risk governance vehicle yes. as opposed to a true innovation ally. Yes. So I would say uh, pro- lack of process or, or wrong process is a is another one. And the final one would be at a at a macro level would be metrics. So if we incentivize people to do things that are small, safe, and short term, or we have KPIs that encourage people to hack the system by launching or, or relaunching existing product oh, yes. lines just to hit a KPI number, yes. we, we're going to get what we ask for. So you have to be really careful about those incentives and like where the bias may be in that incentive. Um, it's the worst case scenario. Yeah. And what was it? Um, yeah, I was talking to Alison, and she, she's an open economist and she's done a PhD and she's like, oh, every incentive can be gained or something by the employee. And so like there's this inherent risk with incentive choice. Yeah. When it happens. So like you can't just pay an innovation person. Oh, he's on 50K and like if it works, you get 1%. Like that's a lot of work for a very small upside. Yeah. I mean? like, and, uh, and vice versa, you pay them too much and not enough incentive. So. Well, one of the most common KPIs inside of companies for innovation is um, is a percentage of revenue from innovation. And it sounds good. Like, in theory, you're like, yeah, actually, that, that sounds really good. So if good. this works, I get a percentage of it? Uh, no, it's more of a case of out of your company's total three-year rolling revenue, mm-hmm. what proportion was contributed by innovation? Oh, wow. And it seemed, that seems like a very honourable KPI. But what you find is innovation is always, you know, in that context is is uh, calculated in terms of absolute revenue. Therefore, what some sneaky people do is they'll relaunch an entire brand, doing a refresh on brands and you're adding some different product lines and some new flavours and pack size or whatever. Mm-hmm. But really, uh, you know, in FMCG, sometimes if you make a significant enough change, it might be like decreasing your pack size a little bit mm-hmm. or changing a, a, a name or some terminology or some nomenclature. That, that requires you to, you know, in, in, a, in a system mm-hmm. to delete and reintroduce. So those lines are one for one. They're just replacement of what used to be there, mm-hmm. but they are contributing to your innovation number because it's calculated in absolute terms. Okay. A way more powerful KPI is the incremental value that is being driven. So so share of growth in terms of revenue or profit mm-hmm. in incremental terms. And it takes out that ability for the system to be hacked using absolute <laughs> product numbers. It's a it's a bit detailed, but it's something that I've seen but it, know, a lot of resources chase just so they can hit their bonus. A general approach. So if you have to take dumb it down, there's sort of like certain stages that you go through, you know, step one, two, three, four, five, and that's kind of like the basic process without giving yeah. too much of your secrets also. Right? Yeah, so one thing I would just start by saying is it's, it's very messy and it's not it's not neat. So like stage gate we have, you know, it usually starts with idea and maybe some de- development or some te- testing and then we have feasibility and then we have business case and then we have this and then we have go to market and i guess in general blocks and phases of time yeah it might look a little bit like that but it's, it's certainly not linear so sometimes you know you'll learn stuff downstream that will inform what you thought in the beginning and, and so there's a lot of discovery opportunities along the way but what i would generally say is maybe the easiest way to explain it would be using like the ideo model desirability feasibility viability uh, in, 
in the beginning, you're looking to understand a lot about the market, identify a problem or a under-satisfied need, something that people want. Sometimes it can just be something, you know, people want more of something and there's not enough out there. But basically it's like, what are, what would people find desirable because uh, there, there's an issue, there's a conflict, there's a tension, how might you be able to solve it? So like validate that opportunity for that market, mm-hmm. understand them really well, uh, maybe turn it into something like a job to be done. Then focus your problem-solving solution mode around how might we solve that job to be done. And that's it's not like the first idea that comes into your mind is the best. So that becomes a little bit of a, an iterative process as well where you're bouncing some stuff off the market. Yeah. And what I would refer to is product problem fit. Like how do we make that work? Or another way you could talk about it, I guess, is bit early for product market fit but you know what I mean like making sure that those people in that situation who have those problems that something like this might be able to it's kind of like um, when you're pitching a, a new startup idea you might take a while to formulate the idea and then you start testing it like well like I did with Uber drivers and I'm like if I can't explain a pitch to them and they go oh yeah that's interesting yeah. it's kind of like my very early stage pre-testing it's kind yes. of like what do you think of this idea and you've crafted a bit yes. and you're going what is the end of that uh, with a small sample and then okay I think I'm onto something here now let's flush it out is that kind of what you're saying yeah yeah, yeah. And, you're, and you're showing people things and you're okay. using concepts and mock-ups and, and, and prototypes of varying fidelity and, and you, you basically you're just trying to find I mean, you sort of know it when you yeah, when you when it's when you're onto something. People's re- response, um, the data, the, the the measurement, it it all validates and, and gives you a lot of encouragement. Okay. Like, found a problem worth solving. That's a really novel way of doing it, and it's better than things that currently exist. And then what you're trying to do from there is figure out, okay, is it even practical to make this and market this and and, and commercialize it? Sure. So, that's where the feasibility stuff comes into it, which is, can we, uh, do we know how to make it? Would we make it? Would we partner with someone? Can someone else make it for us? In the context of a product-based business, how might we store it and circulate it and deliver it to the end consumer or customer? Mm. Um, that brings in some, uh, some channel information as well. And then finally, can we make money out of this? Is this a business model that actually works? Yeah. And if not now, at a small scale, at what point? Yes. Um, at what point do the unit economics make sense? The return, you know, the hockey stick, mm-hmm. the J curve. So, like, can we wear that initial period of time where things don't look great? Now, that might be not even existent mm-hmm. other than the cost of your human resources, your creative and your media for a lot of innovations. Mm-hmm. Like those stretch, brand stretch and adjacent <laughs> innovations, that sometimes you're not sinking a lot of capital into those things. It's well, this, about leverage. Just happened to me the other day, and because this is where services, I think, is very different to product, is that mm. services, you've already kind of got the infrastructure there. You can often descale or simplify and defeature a current service without changing any of your operations. You're just yes. repackaging it with a different bow yeah. at a lower price point or whatever, and then yeah. some into a different segment. And then you can do that two or three times and upsell them, and then suddenly you turn one service into five with pretty much like very negligible cost. Yeah. And when it comes to SaaS, this is why SaaS businesses have so high valuations is because the variable cost of an additional unit production is like mm-hmm. almost nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so once you've got that fixed cost infrastructure set up, it's like the scalability is crazy. Where I think, and you mentioned this to me about products, like sometimes creating a prototype of a product is really high risk because you've got to invest a lot of money in that process to get the first unit done and you don't know if it'll be successful or not. Well, that's right, particularly if 
if you say you're going to do a test market mm. and you're actually going to get some transactional learning with paying customers, if you're in food, that's a huge undertaking because you know do the wrong thing, you can kill people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, there's regulations, there's sure. there's laws, there's legislation, there's there's so many things you need to get right, and and the a digital conceptual version of something might be mediocre because people can sort of get their head around it and go, oh, I know what you're trying to do there. Yes, if you just did this, you just did that. You can put a beta, beta out there and just be very clear and say yep. this isn't optimal yet, but we just want to use it, tell us what you think. You can't do it. Like we, you give someone some food or a, or a functional supplement or something like that, if it doesn't work, if it tastes bad, any of these other things, like there's not much learning value in that. You've slowed down. And for a lot of my clients, they're worried to, yeah. to, to, to do a test market, show their hand to the, yeah. to, to the public because some of these lead times are very long. And mm. if you have a more flexible, nimble, agile competitor, they might beat you to the market. Okay. But yeah, some of the things you can do in services and software yeah. with innovation and testing and iterating on really short time frame, product innovators would love to be able to do that. You know, a lot of the time I've actually done pre-selling. So I pre-sold the idea before we even created the service. Yeah. And, you know, you just get some minions to do the, the back-end system to create it. And it looks like it's automated, but it's not. <laughs> it's a wizard of Oz. Yeah, but a wizard of Oz. Or you do a landing page going, hey, this is a new product. I've got an opt-in here, be the first cohort. Yeah. And you haven't even created a product. You're just testing. Is there demand for this? Are people yeah. willing to transact? Well, a strike thing, you'll find out within, you know, a couple of days if that's got validity or not. Yes. And then you go, okay, I've got to build that thing. Yeah. And I've done that many times and it's been great. Yeah. You can't do that with the product. No, I think the closest you, you, we, we do is, uh, we, you know, we have depth interviews and, uh, focus groups and we do quantitative concept testing and you're trying to triangulate all these. None of them are good enough to say this is going to work or not. Yeah. But they're good enough to try and poke holes and de-risk it, right? Sort of yeah. saying like, you know, am I feeling better or worse about this based on all this new bit of information? Therefore, what am I going to iterate and change for the next time? And you keep going through until you get there. And yeah, a lot of it's simulated. A lot of it's pre-market. A lot of it's not the real thing. I mean, in, in products, if you're, depending on your channel strategy, you can get sign-ups. You can get uh, letters of intent. You can get registration. Well, look at Cybertruck. Can... I mean, that's what he did. Is it like still not made? What was that like? Twenty nineteen, like eighteen, he announced Cybertruck, and yeah, it's like, yeah. oh, my stuff production twenty. That's right. I did twenty twenty three, and they made yeah. what was it? Fifteen million or a hundred million or something? Of oh, pay a hundred dollars, and that's what he was doing. He was testing. Yeah. You know, I'm sure that functional model was not that that first Cybertruck wasn't really functional on stage and they made it functional afterwards. But yeah, it's just like, hey, there's an idea. What do you guys think? Yeah. And everyone's like, yeah, skip me that. Yes. Uh, will it have unbreakable windows? Is that <laughs> yeah. is that truck like this unbreakable so steel? Is that sort of um, car safety compliant? I think one of those tests failed, didn't it? Didn't the window break? Well, that was a publicity stunt. I think it was oh, kind of gotcha. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it, well, pretty much everyone did. Um, and yeah, look, you can't have, you have to have crumple zones for car safety. So you can't have this like sledgehammer proof, yeah. uh, siding on your car. Like it's not going to work. Um, but anyway, he sold the coolness of that. And I'm sure the eventual product model is going to look pretty different to yeah. some of the promises that we made. But yeah, I thought that was a really cool way of taking that innovation mindset that mm. came from PayPal and the software world and applying yes. it to physical products. Yeah. Which, you know, would probably be the highest fixed cost products to make, which would be cars, you know, like, the processes for that would be insane. Yes. But yeah, mock up a little shell prototype, not that hard, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, you know, consumer electronics, a lot of that kind of stuff is done. Consumer mm. durables even. A little less in food, but it's not, not because you can't. 
yeah, I think there's just a little bit of fear that comes with in market testing that still exists in um, particularly in FMCG. Um, and what about measurements? You kind of touched on uh, some of the KPIs and ways you should be measuring innovation, but obviously there's a pretty hard thing to measure, arguably. <laughs> What's your way of going about doing that all? When you're managing innovation in a in a company as a as an outcome, you it's, it's all relative to your objectives, of course, but as an outcome. You, you want to be able to see tangible value creation, profitable, hopefully, value creation, contributing to the growth of the company yeah. in a way that's very consistent with the corporate strategy and the strategic imperatives, right? We're helping the company do what it's trying to do. And like I said before, that some of those KPIs can be, as, as I guess, lag indicators, yeah. could be things like uh, at a company level, percentage of revenue and or profit growth via innovation. Mm -hmm. At a brand or a portfolio level, it might, it might be more about penetration. Mm -hmm. How many new people are we reaching now yeah. or at a brand level? How many new people carefully step around the loyalty thing, but like, you know, what's our, you know, in some uh, businesses, what's average transactional value online? How many new distribution points? are we in now as a result of that innovation sure. being like how many products and how many stores. Maybe new retailers go, hey, give me that product. That sounds awesome. We have people yeah. asking for it. Like that's yeah. a it's good thing. What about internal processes though? Like this is a bit harder because maybe you've innovated a new process within mm -hmm. the company that allows for to do their jobs quicker or faster or whatever. And you're yeah. saving time, but that doesn't really get measured a lot of time because it's just salary and you know, that's it. Yeah. Uh, and maybe some task completion in JIRA or something, you know? So how, how would you measure that? I would say that you can you can measure productivity gains in terms of head hours and rates and things like that and mm. measure relative input to same output. And I think that's something that's done fairly well after uh, post M&A when they're trying to integrate the business and realise those hard. efficiencies. Which is so hard, yeah. Plans don't always go, you know, work out in the real world <laughs> as, they, as they're sketched on paper. But is there a way for us to do all of that by centralizing something and cutting out the fat that kind of stuff like you know value engineering cost engineering sure. that kind of stuff but if it's not just purely cost based if it you know if it is a process innovation or if it's a business model innovation hmm. the measurement shouldn't be too difficult because you can associate and attach that directly with that venture you wrote this really interesting post. You said, obsession with data collection, customer feedback, and net promoter scores fries my brain. Dot, yeah. dot, dot. Uh, those are all the things that I read. And you talk about non-actionable data in the wrong places at the wrong times, devoid of insights and how sometimes it can point in the wrong direction. Like basically you're measuring the wrong things that don't matter. I think that was after an encounter. Uh, at the airport. At the, yeah, at the, at the airport, airport yeah. where I... Um, where it asked me what my experience was like in the bathroom after I just washed my hands and then I meant to press this touchpad. Um, yeah. That was pre-COVID as well. Imagine what it's like now. Yeah, no, it was more, I think that as a general theme, I'm seeing more and more uh, in infatuation with data, but it's not necessarily leading to more knowledge and a greater evidence base to make decisions. So if I use marketing communication for an example you know there's this massive over-reliance and sometimes a sole focus on the stupidest term ever performance marketing because people can measure it and feel feel like you know they're doing a good job and a lot of the time they are but it doesn't mean there aren't other levers 
and there aren't other ways to build the things that matter yeah. in the minds of your consumers at the right time in the context using other channels. In innovation, how I see that coming up sometimes is an overuse of, say, category data or shopper data, which is rear view looking. It's historic and it, and, oh, it, and it forces people, and it once again, not hanging crap on anything because I believe in using a universe of data and yeah. information and triangulating. Yes. And that's where the, the power of the marketer is being able to synthesize that and turn it into some so what's and create action. But if you're only like down to a, a very limited source of data, it's backwards looking and it's curated to be in a category definition that no consumers think of. It just makes no. our life easier exactly. in Asia. Yes. Scan data and stuff like that. What it's going to lead us to is continue to do copycat activity. Oh, look, that segment's growing and we don't have something there or that brand is doing really well. Let's do one of them. Instead of zooming out and going, what kind of foresight can we build into this company? What's happening on a macro perspective? What kind of signals and cues and momentum can we use to infer a future that we might be able to start getting ready for right now? So if this keeps playing forward, we might have a brand that historically been very, very strong in the future. It could be obsolete because we're starting to get these signals and this momentum. What can we do now to intervene and prepare, right? But instead, we're, we're focused on a limited edition cookie-flavoured milk this month and strawberry line extension over here. And then next minute, someone's just come in and blindsided you with a complete new way of serving your needs in that occasion. You know where I think this comes from, like you said, it's kind of twofold. One, when management consultants look and do these kind of studies, they're always using available data from available categories that are already kind of defined or named by somebody. And then they can do this critical analysis. But yeah, in doing that, you're not opening your mind to all the other different iterations that may be setting aside that category. And like you said, the customer doesn't think in categories. They think in I have this context, like we know, like CEPs yeah. uh, or jobs to be done. I have this thing that I need to do. There's different products that I could use. Maybe that aren't direct competitors. Like, yeah. for example, Coke, you know, refreshment. I could get refreshment from a bottle of water. I yeah. could get it from the, the tap down the road next yes. to the park, you know, while I'm walking. Like, there's different ways. And then there can be another category that's like sugary drinks. Like, that needs sort of energetic, you know, before yeah. a workout. Again, like, there's different use cases for the same product yes. that, that go across these categories. And it's thinking yeah. about more tangentially about what all the different variations. Yeah, and that's why I think distinctive brand assets and growing mm. mental availability, mm. yeah, it is in a category context because mm. sometimes people have drilled down to that level, I'm going to go and buy health food bar, I'm going to go buy protein bar. If you want to be mentally available and considered in a relevant, credible way in that, you, in your marketing is effective, great, you have a high probability of being bought thought about and bought, right? So I, from a marketing point of view, having category associations is very strong. Mm -hmm. So too is having use case and occasion-based and need-based associations. But from an innovation point of view, sometimes the biggest sources of inspiration aren't in your backyard. They might be just over the fence or they might be just in this other area and you haven't even spent any time exploring that or pondering it because you are so busy looking at historic data and maybe rightly so, maybe that's your remit. But my point is, if you have 99% of your business focusing on delivering today, who's building tomorrow? Probably no one. <laughs> <laughs> I've talked a tiny bit about people who are maybe less experienced in the innovation space. 
versus someone like yourself who would be more on that other side of high experience, innovation-based. You know, you can see things that are going to fail, but they do. What are the hallmarks of both those types of people? Well, the first thing I'd say is I, I, I can't always see things that are going to fail sure, before sure. they fail. Sometimes when we're doing research and venture building and I'm feeling really strongly about a, an idea or a value proposition and it, we do another round of consumer engagement across different methods of research and it just crashes and burns <laughs> and I'm just like, no. But um, I'm so grateful for learning that so far upstream. Yeah. And um, I can sort of, I think the, the thing that I have been able to cultivate is non-attachment and just sort of move on. Yeah. So back to your question though, the newbie versus the highly experienced innovation expert, I would just say it's, it's a little bit of a case sometimes of beware the expert. If, if you're an expert without being open-minded and curious with some humility, it's pretty dangerous because you, you, you think you have the answers from early on and you stay a little bit closed-minded to the other alternatives and, and shifts in the market, and, shifts in the yeah, market yeah. and opportunities to make something better. And there are always, like I always say when we're innovating, sorry, when we're ideating with teams, I always say just get all your ideas out there, even if they're not fully formed or they're great because brilliant ideas stand on the shoulders of great ideas which stand on the shoulders of good ideas. And sometimes you might smack it out of the park really early, but usually it's more iterative. Yeah. And it's about joining dots and building, building and bouncing. Kind of like creativity, some of my best ideas, like when I was doing this brand deck recently, it was like you've done your five meetings and then you're, you don't even know, you're going for a walk in the shower or whatever, and those things are formulating, you're like, oh, that's the way I should say it. And like that came after like a month, for example, for me, on one of these things. I'm like, that's the perfect word to describe that. Yeah. Uh, so it's similar. And because you're like integrating all this different stimuli and you solve it when you're not rationally trying to solve it. Yes. It's amazing. Like, <laughs> yeah. that, 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 that essence. But, so the more you try, the more you kind of don't get it. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. You're trying to force it. So what I would say is like some of the, the younger newbies, some of the benefits that they bring is just open-mindedness and curiosity. Sure. But you maybe know. missing that framework or that discipline of process. Yeah, maybe, maybe missing yeah. a little bit of that, which is understandable because yeah. they're new. And maybe being in terms of sources of inspiration, catalysts for ideas and new things, maybe a little bit too focused on social media um, <laughs> and, uh, and and probably could just take some more diverse diversity when it comes to input. And and I guess the, the highly experienced practitioners Sometimes they're a bit set in the ways, like, you know, this is how we do it. This is how we've always done it. But, but you get like a really experienced gun innovator who's been around for a while, but they're, they're, they're not falling into the really bad traps of projecting themselves onto the market. And they're just wanting to be, they're in a learning mode before they get to lock in whatever that thing you're building is. Yeah. They're incredibly valuable to organizations. We, we need those people. Isn't it funny because I find there's this paradox of like um, the stronger your ego, the more politically within an organization you're perceived as someone of great stature, mm -hmm. right? And they sort of play into the ego, but then that ends up making some of the work in this space. And I know in growth especially, mm -hmm. you overthink things, you assume things, you use things that used to work that are now so far changed that don't work anymore mm -hmm. and you're sort of resting on your laurels, but you've got this persona within the organization of you know authority that you don't want to challenge and i think for me that's where i see that fail a lot like yeah. like you said humidity yeah. it sort of goes against political oh my god uh, it does things yeah so, so bad. some of the really great marketers i've worked with over time have been 
maybe a little bit more introverted, certainly absent of hubris and very honest. <laughs> and so they're going to go and present something and saying I'm not sure isn't really rewarded. You know what I mean? But it's yeah. true. Most of the time we don't know and we should be asking to go and find out. So you have some of these people who are penalised for being honest and having intellectual honesty and other people who are rewarded for chest beating and writing these really lengthy, arduous, sometimes emotive documents <laughs> and creating these forecasts that are going to change the world and everyone's applauding it on paper a year and a half before it hits the market and they rarely live up to their promises. So, yeah, I see that as well. And, and, and I think it's a cultural thing and it's a process. Like I was mentioning the other day, again, for growth, like, which is highly innovative, by the way, so there's parallels there. There has to be this toleration of that within the culture. So there has to be a relaxation of this political kind of hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And there has to be a tolerance of not having answers, being wrong, and that not negatively affecting your political aspirations in the company. And most structures, if they're hierarchical, do not play well onto that. What are some of the ways then to to dismantle that or to, to hit that on its head if you see that with a client? You just know the culture is not going to be kind to innovation. Well, what are the remedies? Is, is there a remedy or not? Of course, it always needs to be adapted for like particular personalities. But I would say the remedy is taking an evidence-based approach to innovation and it's not what do you think it's what have you proven so is that your market let's put it in in a more familiar example someone's just written a positioning statement and they've come up with some bloody pen portrait of the consumer or something like right? a persona yeah, yeah. <laughs> ask one question have you ever spoken to that person like directly not friends and family but have you gone out and try to cultivate empathy by speaking Lots of people, those that you think fit your segment of your buyer base that you want to speak to with these messages and these products and that price point and that availability, like, have you ever had a conversation? And, and a lot of the time will be no, um, but we've paid our agencies to go and talk to them or something like that, right? Same thing happens in innovation. You, you might have somebody who's created an idea at their desk, gone straight from there into a stage gate idea paper approval and it's basically a lot of assumptions i think these people want this thing because of they will be willing to pay this for these reasons and it's better it's very hard because you you sometimes don't know that you're projecting you don't realize how like if you think about the people we work with or even us in our former lives the salary we were on the areas we've lived our household structure, our values, our interests, and all these kinds of things. We're in our own little bubble, aren't we, almost? We are hardly representative of anybody. (laughs) Like like the 1% or 0.1% or something. Yeah, and we think we know all these things. And then when you go and actually meet them, it's it's, it's actually mind-blowing sometimes. I did some work in sports nutrition, Mm -hmm. and we, 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 we were recruiting to try and get a better understanding of our buyers for this particular brand. In, uh, in protein powder. And because of the way that the brand communicated and it was very sort of elitist and performance-based yeah. and had these, um, it, it was personified in this way and we had these people who were partners and influencers and we were sponsoring these athletes, the, the team just had in mind the kinds of people that 
would be biased. So through a, through a research study, qualitative research study this one, they recruited heavy brand buyers, right? Mm-hmm. Using all the right criteria, very tight screen. And when the people rocked up into the focus group and, you know, let's not get into how valuable a focus, focus group is and, and, and ethnography and views, but the people that rocked up to this focus group, the marketers in the room are like, what went wrong? Like, did we get the brief wrong? Is, are we in the wrong room? Yeah, these are um, Did we get our night and our time mixer? <laughs> no, no, no. They were the right people. That's more representative of the people buying your tubs of protein every month than the cover of Sports Illustrated. Yeah. Those people just want to feel better about themselves. Those people want to get in shape and they would aspire to be like those people, <laughs> but it's probably pretty inaccessible for a lot of them. And you know what? Those people that look that way, mm. that you portray and sort of back, are less than 1% of the population. Middle Australia, who are interested in health and fitness and doing better for their body, they look like that. I don't mean to say that Brands shouldn't use um, aspirational things and tools and techniques and everything to aspire people to aspire up. But I would say that sometimes, like when you're thinking about need states, usage occasions, media channels and messaging, and even product development as well, think about the broader population, the big critical masses, because there's a lot of value in solving their problems. And especially when you're talking about partnerships as well, it's like understand your customer and sometimes who you think customer isn't. And then you talk to them and you're like, oh, well, they all do this thing. And if I partner with that, that'd be a really good, you know, co-promotion with our product. And it makes yes. you think in very different ways. You'd never considered before by like talking to your agency yeah. and go, no, you should spend some more money on, you know, this primetime TV show, you know, Ninja Warrior or whatever it is. Yeah. You know? and the last thing is, just, where have you seen the industry progress? So you did mention waterfall and stagegate and maybe some of these less fashionable things and where innovation started and where we kind of are now. Where do you think we're going? Where- I see jobs to be done. In, in, a, in a certain way because I was trained in a certain way and, you know, I'm a fan of Clayton's work and you know, HBR and all that kind of stuff. Well, I pick and choose what I like. Yeah. <laughs> Some people who had never been exposed to it in the right context, I see jobs to be done used in sales presentations for Woolworths and Coles and it will have things like jobs to be done, one, drive sales, two, increase average oh, that's, that's no, no no so okay, like okay. so my point would be like some things are completely misused the more popular <laughs> they become the more watered down the less powerful they become yeah yeah um, it's like uh, everyone says byron doesn't believe in loyalty it's like no i never no, said no, that no, you know no. they get to misquote all the time <laughs> yes and uh you know people spruiking all this stuff about distinctive brand assets and, yeah. and you know brand building or, or like uh, the importance of uh salience and then you'll have a look at their media strategy and their tv flighting it's like three weeks burst on air, and 49 weeks a year, they're not. So, look, there is some irony in there. Uh, what's changed in innovation? When you have a look at the data, the importance of innovation to build the future of organisations is very well understood at the, exec- at the executive level. Mm-hmm. I think I read an article the other day, it's a top three strategic imperative in 75% of organizations, Wow! right? So there's the importance is understood. There's still the gap between being good at it and, and operationalizing it and, and getting it to coexist with business as usual. So I would say that that has grown and what has probably accelerated it is this period that we've gone through of insurgency and disruption and people digitizing things and finding their own category entry points and coming in at the bottom and 
and really like not playing by the same rule. So maybe that lowering barrier to entry of, of innovative new product development, like there's the cycles are quicker. It's like bang, you get to market, yeah. test something yeah. else. Even companies you can contract to kind of like test something with existing distribution, just bang, contract yeah. them to do it and they've got everything set up. I mean, you and I yeah. with 10, 15 grand on a credit card yeah. can go and stick it to some really big companies, in, in, you know, in, in certain areas, if there was some white space, we see something. With that bit of money and, and, and a little bit of effort and some energy, we could recruit consumers and get people Upwork and Fiverr and Airtask are doing stuff for us. You know, there's a lot of tools from graphic design and, you know, we can do stuff yeah. ourselves and different services. And then just say it is a product, we can use a contract manufacturer and do a quite a yeah. tight minimum order. Like a contract um, brewer, for example, they hold the liquor license and everything. It's sort of like small writing. It's like them because yeah. it's their product, but then you just... You can create your own beer label and bang. Take it to market. People are doing it every day. Yeah. And, you know, they're failing just as often as the corporates, but <laughs> yeah. you hear a lot about the successes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Survivorship um, bias, right? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a, that, that, that's a truth uh, because huh. of the disruptive environment, because lower barriers to entry, because of the, the, the more agile, nimble, quicker approach to building or, or like working in a small business or, or mm-hmm. doing stuff in a startup versus a legacy business that has a lot to look after, a lot on the line, a lot to risk and, and a lot of stakeholders and interdependencies. So like it's very hard there and, and I think large organizations look at small ones and go, Oh it'd be that's really cool to, to be able to move like a like a like a ninja. Yes. And the little guys go, Oh, your brands and your distribution and your partners and networks, oh my God, I'll be they want a bit of what each other has. Yeah. So, you know, that's in my client base, that's definitely understood and definitely on the radar. And, and now they're looking for other ways to operationalize that. So, mm. you know, to your point, mm. StageGate's still there. Take a, a while. Maybe, maybe it should be, be like, maybe StageGate should be a process for certain types of innovations that are highly certain. You know what you want. You know your scope. You know your time frame. Yep. There's a lot less uncertainties, but when you're using, uh, or when you're pursuing things that are more uncertain, adjacencies and, and breakthroughs, mm. maybe you need uh, a, a little bit of uh, design thinking in the front end and some lean startup mentality for a test and learn at MVP and working in a more agile That's fashion, right, yeah. Yeah. doing things in small chunks and a lot of collaboration, a lot of convergence and divergence. So sort of hybrid project management methods. Yeah. yeah. It's funny you say that because like everyone thinks about Agile is really the new thing. I'm like, no, it's from the 1970s, number one. Number two, uh, the biggest tech companies in the world don't use it anymore. They have their own ways of doing things that have been adapted to their, their organizational structure that work for them, which, like you said, blend little bits of maybe it's a mix of Agile waterfall you know, and stage get together. So. Yeah. What about the companies that do it really well, innovation? Like if you had to look at the Rolls Royce of innovation, is there couple of companies that come to mind or, or brands I do it really I'm, well. I'm, I'm reluctant to say any companies because it does ebb and flow based on how well they're doing and I'll say that in a cross-industry perspective. There's no doubt at all that when you see the top 20, top 50, top 100 lists mm-hmm. of the greatest innovators, you're always going to have the Apple, the Microsoft, the Amazon that, you know, and then um, in every presentation, there'll be an Airbnb, a Netflix, and Uber kind of case study. Yeah. I'm reluctant to say that because I, I think it should be in the context of your industry because your conditions aren't the same. Yeah, in, there's in, so many other different variables. In, in a so. super cash-rich business that is technology-based versus over here versus somewhere else. So like for that part, I don't like that. And, and sometimes the mm. method 
for getting to that short list of the top 50 or whatever. It's sometimes just the industry voting. It's huh. peers in the industry voting and then it's share market price um, relative in the indices. Mm. So sometimes the methods I don't buy into, but, 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 but I think um, what I would say is the better organizations when it comes to innovating have it in their DNA yeah. um, and a very bare minimum they commit resources to. Yeah. They have that, um, you know, we were talking before about that dual approach, mm-hmm. like that ambidexterity. Most of the organization is delivering the now, operational efficiency, grow share, mm-hmm. um, be productive, maximize profit. You need some of it to go, what's next? What's okay. new? Yeah, yeah. yeah. product roadmap, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. A couple of questions to finish. A really good book that's changed your way of thinking for the better that you'd want to recommend other people read. Uh, yeah, it would have to be The Price of Tomorrow by Jeff Booth, and it's about how exponential technologies are impacting the, the, the world mm-hmm. um, and how as a, as a force, they're actually deflationary. Mm-hmm. They make things cheaper over time, right? Technology is generally a deflationary force, sure. Moore's Law and all of those kinds of things. Um, however, what's really interesting in this book, and it, and it looks at, um, you know, renewable energy, it looks at, at blockchain, it looks at so many different um, exponential technology, AI and all that kind of stuff. The interesting part is the, the convergence between technology as a deflationary force, but a global economic system that is inherently inflationary, where we need GDP growth. We need some inflation, not as much as we have at the moment, and we need to be able to pay back debts. It's a, it's a debt-based financial system. Sure. So technology, you know, if it was fully effective in so many areas, it could actually have the role of shrinking GDP. Uh, so I just found that one of the best books that I've, one of the most provocative books as a human and as an innovator um, recently. So I definitely recommend that to anybody who's interested in technology and um, I guess futures and foresight and stuff like mm-hmm. that. What about a website or something that is your go-to website for thinking around this space of innovation? You did mention one of the canvases, one before that comes from a website, but I can't live without Nero. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> for conceptual sort of diagrams and drawing things together, or because there's lots of different templates. Right? There, yeah, there is, so. yeah. So I mean, its original name I think was Real Time Board. Yeah. Um, so it's basically a virtual whiteboard. And I use it with all of my clients as well as all of my own stuff. And it's uh, it's a it's an infinite virtual whiteboard mm-hmm. that I can use for running and facilitating sessions with teams, for, for organizing and building work plans, mm-hmm. for grouping, for when I'm doing research projects, for grouping into different buckets and drawing inferences and connections yep. between different things, for mind mapping. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just a... I used to make diagrams for presentations too. So oh, like, okay. if there's a complex diagram that might... I want to take inspiration with someone else's diagram. Yes. I can recreate it. Yeah, quickly, yeah, yeah. yeah handy. Whereas in Word, you can, it's, just, it's not built for that. Yeah, I think that one of the good things is it's, it's like it's your whiteboard, basically infinite in terms of how much you can use. Yeah, you just keep going out the space. And it's not like when you're in, you know, you're working in an office, you go back the next morning and someone's like cleared out all your stuff and you're like, no. damn it. Yeah, because uh, you've got so an actual real whiteboard. I have a real whiteboard over there. Yeah. So. 
Yeah. Uh, what about a piece of software or tech? It could be hardware or software that helps you get the job done better. You have mentioned software, so maybe um, something maybe else. Tech. Uh, my other favorite, so my two things that I always have to have, one is Miro whiteboard, the other is my remarkable notebook. Oh, that's right. I have to use that. The yeah. tablet. Yeah. Um, and that's just replaced about 58 um, notebooks that I used to scribble and try and have like, you know, one for different purposes. Mm -hmm. And now it's just all in one digitized notebook that backs up to the cloud and yep. I can have a meeting, jot some notes down and PDF it to you in real time while we're mm -hmm. still talking. You'll have a copy and you can convert to text and yep. all that kind of stuff. And you find you're still using a laptop? Like it's not a substitute for a laptop? It's no, 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 no. So it's a different purpose. It's yep. more for... Or a, or a tablet, you know, like some of these tablets just for sketching and stuff. Yeah, I only use it for that. Yeah. I only really use it for sketching and, and meetings and, and uh, I guess, minute-taking as well. Yeah. I want to come back to my desk and type anything up. I don't do that. Mm. But if I can get some key points down there and then, the next time I catch up with that person, I go to their folder. I mean, what did we talk about last? And I'm, well, I'm going to ask them about how their kid's basketball game went or, yeah. you know, Remember last time we left this open here, I'm going to loop back in on how that venture went or, or whatever it is. Yeah. So it's. Um, uh, what about memes? So I know I've got a couple of favorites here, um, but um, is there just something that really sums up the innovation space? Like it's a cartoon or it's a meme that it's just hilarious, makes you laugh every time? Uh, yeah, like one that I really, oh, well, actually, I relate to many of them, and I think I saw yeah. you put something on LinkedIn recently about Tom Fishburne and yes. Mark Latunas. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I connect with so many of them. It's clear that he has insight and empathy for what we do in business yeah. and marketing and innovation. But from an innovation-specific one, uh, there's a there's a a panel where. Uh, it's an ideation session and somebody's up at a, at a board and there's lots of colourful post-it notes behind him, as there always are, and I think he's pointing to one or something. And then in front of him is is a is a row of his uh, colleagues and it looks like some executives are in there as well, you know, suit and serious. Mm. And uh, let's just say the person in the corner is the CEO or the mm. CE, uh, COO. And um, the speech bubble is, so this person's standing up pointing to one of the ideas up on the up on the board and the person sitting down, the, the executive is saying, um, how can we pick the most innov innovative idea that helps us keep things exactly as they are? <laughs> and then I just thought to myself, that is, uh, that's gold <laughs> and it's true and maybe I've experienced a moment or two <laughs> like that in my career. <laughs> I think pretty much every marketing you have ever been in is like, I'm just thinking, oh, that's exactly like that comment. Like, <laughs> yeah, it just happens over and over. Yeah. And there's a lot of them, and you've got one for every single situation. You can just yeah. tell that, like, to come up with a new idea, someone's being in that meeting or oh, in yeah. that yeah. exact, like, yeah. frame of reference, I'm going, I've got to create a yeah. comic. He's turned that. some light. Pain into some yeah. uh, into some comedy, which, yeah, is, yeah. which is great. You said you're a consultant. Are you doing this by yourself and a couple other people, I assume? But um, tell us mostly what you're working on right now. Yeah, so so marketing and innovation consulting, and I I guess my specialties are marketing strategy and brand building. I apply a very science based approach to that and just try and help people be a lot more effective with their with their expenditure and just getting a better return on effort a lot of common pitfalls and things and there's, you know there's some really good ways to help people build their brands and just be a bit smarter about how they go about it so there's the marketing side and brand building there's obviously innovation that we spend a lot about today that can be anything from capability building training 
um, process design implementation, um, strategy, structure, but also getting on the tools sometimes and helping people craft and shape things themselves. Um, and then every now and then, um, whether it's within a current scope of work, so as a as a route to improving our decision-making for marketing innovation, mm -hmm. or whether it's a standalone, just ad hoc thing, I'll do some research for people okay. sometimes as well. Yeah. Um, you know, questionnaire design, um, uh, structuring um, discussion guides, yeah. uh, stimulus yeah. development, all of that kind of stuff. You're getting mostly FMCG, but I do help with, uh, I'm doing some B2B services work at the moment, doing a little bit of head and uh, alcohol and yeah. uh, also working with some private equity um, oh, cool. as well at the moment as well so that's really interesting so yeah. uh, fairly diverse never boring um and what uh, what about your website if someone wants to find out what, what's the URL? if anybody wants to find out or uh, or even just connect with me linkedin is always good okay love connecting with people there and learning and laughing and <laughs> my website is adamhamilton.co.co okay and people can yeah connect with me there or via linkedin Sounds great. Thanks for having a chat today, Adam. I really appreciate it. That was a bit fun. Cheers. There you go. That's another one of our core strategy episodes. And really, this one was a mix of entrepreneurship, new product development, as well as parts of core product strategy and marketing. I'd recommend perhaps pairing this episode of Champagne with Rich Mirinov's episode on product strategy and Sean Ellis's episode on growth strategy. The themes would really complement one another nicely. There's lots to work through, and thanks again for your support. Have feedback or want to comment? Give this podcast review on your podcast listening app of choice. Follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter. Comment on a post, send me a DM, tell me why you like this or didn't, and everything else. Give me some suggestions on a new work topic that we could talk about. A great way to do this is to join my reverse newsletter, where I send you an email each month and answer your questions or source information for you instead of the other way around. Go to hybrancy.substack.com to sign up. A dose of John is my Twitter handle or find the official John James on LinkedIn. And if you're into champagne, you can find me on Instagram under the handle Champagne Society. Check out the Hybrancy YouTube channel for snackable highlights and full episodes, which will be neatly categorized by topic via the playlist function. But that's all for now. Thanks for listening.